everyone and welcome back to another episode of World of Sharks, a podcast all about sharks, their relatives and their ocean home brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. My name is Isla, I'm a scientist and science communicator for the Save Our Seas Foundation and every episode I have the absolute joy of learning from and chatting with world-leading experts in shark science, conservation, education and storytelling to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. This week is very exciting because we are all being initiated into a very special squad, the zombie squad, by none other than the zombie queen herself, shark brain expert Dr. Kara Yopak. Kara is an associate professor in biology at the University of North Carolina Wilmington and director of the Zombie Lab, which stands for Zootomical Morphology of the Brain and its Evolution. Now, what that means in non-sciencey terms is that Kara and her students are interested in what different shark brains look like and how these differences have evolved over time. She looks at variations in brain size, so who has a small brain, who has a big brain, as well as differences in how the brain is organised and structured. Now, this information can give us insight into how sharks live, their habitat, and even their behaviour. For example, Kara and her team have shown that the brain of a deep sea shark looks completely different to that of a reef shark, and different even to those who roam the open ocean. In fact, Kara and her team have compared over 180 different brains gathered from all over the world. The zombie reference is starting to make sense now, eh? In this episode, we talk about how Kara got into the field of shark neuroscience, the combination of techniques she uses to get inside the mind of a shark, and, of course, everything you could ever want to know about shark brains. You will learn about the basic structure of a shark's brain and how they work, how similar they are to our own and how different, and explore the many differences between species. For example, how does a hammerhead's brain compare to that of a Greenland shark? We also ask the question, does size matter? And delve into the small but surprisingly complex brain of the whale shark. And I ask Kara her least favourite question of all time. What does this mean in terms of shark intelligence? I have been excited for this episode ever since I first stumbled across Kara's work and saw the front page of the website for her lab, which says neuroscience is served and neuroscience is definitely served on this episode with a flourish. We got on like a house on fire. She just loves sharks and is so incredibly passionate and knowledgeable about what she does. Uh, And I don't think I've laughed this much in a podcast episode for a long time. So shark nerds, you're in for a real treat. As always, please be sure to check out Kara and her lab on social media. You can follow her work on Twitter. She is at Prof Sharkbrain, which is one of my favourite Twitter handles of all time. And also on Instagram at Yopak Zombie Lab. Okay, team, grab your lab coats and get ready to get into some great matter. Let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Cara, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Thank you. I'm I'm really excited to be here, and uh, there's nothing I like more than nerding out about shark brains for a bit of time. So this is going to be fun. <laughs> Excellent, because I have been excited to nerd out about shark brains with you since I started researching this episode and since I found your work. I'm 
so unbelievably excited to have you on and we're so grateful for your time um and of course we are going to get stuck into everything to do with shark brains and zombie labs and everything all of this amazing stuff um but first we like to get to know you a little bit better uh and we start and end our podcast with the same question for every guest and the first question is do you have an experience with the ocean that stands out for you as particularly memorable or special and I know that you've likely it's hard to define a particular memory but is there one that kind of stands out for you do you know, because I know, I know the frame, the bookends of these podcasts, and I actually thought a lot about this, and I couldn't think of a time when I didn't love the ocean, and there was never, there was, isn't one moment that really stuck out to me, and I did, I thought about this, um, but I remember as a child, you could not get me out of the water, um, and this is, this is not good podcast content, because you guys can't see me, but I'm very fair, I burn in about three seconds, uh, and I would, as a child, child and lather me up with 800 SPF, zinc oxide on my nose, all the things. And I would be, I was just a fish. I couldn't get out of the water. I loved swimming. I loved learning about the ocean. Uh, and so maybe it's less one incident and more this lifelong passion and fascination um, with this body of water. Amazing. As a fellow water baby, I completely relate to that yeah it, my family used to struggle to get me to get come away from the beach I would be in there in winter all sorts yeah, Same. <laughs> yeah. and my next question was going to be have you always had a connection with the ocean but I guess we've just found out there that the answer is the answer is yes yes Yes. And I, I can't even say where it came from. I grew up in Western Massachusetts, so we didn't live at the beach. I remember we'd make trips out. Um, it was a two hour car ride, you know, but it was a full day affair. So it was this really exciting thing when we got to go to the beach. Um, but it wasn't kind of this part of my life in terms of on a daily basis, but I was just fascinated. I, I can't even pinpoint how it came to be. Um, but no, I, I was five years old when I told my mother I was going to be an ichthyologist who studied sharks. Um, that was it. It was, it's one of my earliest memories. Actually. Wow. <laughs> that's like, that's a pretty, for, for five, that's pretty driven. And that's very specific. <laughs> yes. Um, we've only just met. I'm a very focused person. <laughs> and I, I think that really did start when I was, when I was a child, but, um, yeah, no, I five years old and, and my mom has written proof of it because I had filled this out in one of those Dr. Seuss books all about me. And um, I feel like I've shared this story before. So apologies if this is um, a repeat of something you've heard. But um, we were my sister and I were filling out these books all about me. And it's I have this many teeth in my mouth or I have this many, you know, windows in my house. And um, one page was a double page opener and it said when I grow up I want to be and and I was midway through my PhD and my mom showed me this book and I wrote ichthyologist who studies sharks like Eugenie Clark <gasps> oh wow and I spelt it correctly that's, too that's incredibly <laughs> impressive for a five-year-old I was thinking that I was like did, did she say ichthyologist like I can't even say that as a 30-year-old woman so you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh so I don't know where it stemmed from I just I only remember that it always existed. 
uh, and then I was just fascinated. Well, if you if you put down you want to be like Eugenie Clark, I imagine that like you must have read one of her books or like seen her somewhere. Yeah, I read about her. So I I remember um, the weekends we would always go to the library, and I think. Every friend was, you know, checking out. They were really interested in, you know, Nancy Drew books. And I was all into the shark books. So there were several books that I checked out that I remember reading. Um, I remember reading about Eugenie Clark. I remember reading about Ron and Valerie Taylor. I was really kind of intrigued by some of their photography work. Um, and yeah, and I had I had several books on sharks that was just sort of basic biology and I absorbed it like sponge. But at the time, and I don't think I consciously realized this, but you never heard about women. Like there, none of these stories were about female shark biologists. And so I think Eugenie stuck in my mind because whenever she was mentioned in a book or in relation to shark science, it was like she was it. That that was kind of the, the person that I could emulate because um, it was really one of the only representations that I had of a female shark scientist. Yeah, I still want to be here when I grow up. She's just the coolest. Oh, I know. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Obviously that stuck with you all the way through, you know, your childhood, young adulthood. You went to study biology at Boston University before doing a PhD yes. at the University of Auckland. Um, also amazing, mm -hmm. by the way, studying in New Zealand. Um, <laughs> oh, it's amazing. It's the most beautiful country in the world. If you've not gone, dear listeners, go immediately, drop whatever you're doing. Uh, and I will say it is actually that beautiful. So all those photos you see are not photoshopped. It's, it's so stunning. Uh, I was so lucky to live there. So you were clearly like very passionate about fishes, about sharks, but how did you come to start studying neuroscience and get into the kind of world of shark brains? It's a really good question. And I get asked that a lot because I'll be the first to admit it's pretty weird. <laughs> it's not a normal thing. Um, so I, I would say kind of from five years old, I started to kind of refine my interests, um, particularly when I went to college and um, at Boston University, they had an affiliation with Woods Hole. Um, so there was a BU Marine program. So we spent a semester in Woods Hole and then I went back for a summer internship. And sort of through that time, um, I really started to get very interested in, as I think all young people do, it's like shark behavior. And you know, you see all of the um, Shark Week documentaries and they're on boats and they're, you're trying to understand where sharks go and what they do. And so I was really interested in kind of shark behavior and, and kind of um, sensory systems and what cues are making them go places. And so when I started my, um, my PhD in New Zealand, my advisor, did something kind of amazing, which is he didn't give me a project. He said, we had an idea of what we were going to do, but he said, I just want you to kind of read papers. Um, and so I, I read and I read and I read, and I found that every time I would have a question about behavior or sensory biology, it, you couldn't really answer it until you understood the brain. And so it was almost like this roadmap where I just kept kind of coming to this dead end about, well, what do we know about what do we know about the brain? That's really interesting. And I found this um, paper and written, it was 1978 um, by an amazing comparative neurobiologist named Glenn Northcutt. 
and it was a it was a study that just looked at variation in relative brain size across different species of sharks. And basically, when you think of a shark, and I think probably everybody who's listening thinks this at one point in their life, oh, sharks, small brain, pre-programmed eating machines. That's kind of it. That's that's the rumor. Um, but this paper showed that actually, in terms of relative brain size, sharks um, and um, rays and skates were actually similar to birds and mammals in some cases. And so we think historically, oh, wow, birds and mammals, we think of those as these kind of intelligent species, um, whereas sharks are more basal primitive. Uh, so I found that so cool. And so I took it to my PhD advisor and um, showed him the paper, and he knew of the paper, of course. Um, and what I found really interesting is that it was based on only 12 species. So we think about that, that's actually less than 1% of species currently described. Now in the evolution of what my PhD thesis was gonna become, it was based on, um, at the time, a lot of electrophysiology, which is very risky. <laughs> lots, of, lots of things can go wrong in electrophysiology. And my advisor said, um, we need a data chapter that's just going to work. That means you, know, you collect tissue, you um, ask a question and, and you kind of get uh, a result. And so he said to me, and I've, I've put this in talks before because if you could, I can't pinpoint the, the moment of being in the ocean that struck me, but I can pinpoint the exact moment that started my whole career, um, which was, he said, we need a data chapter that's just gonna work. You should just go collect some brains. <laughs> and I was like, 22? And I said, right, yep, yep. And off and that that was it. That it really was that simple. And it just grew. The electrophysiology crashed and burned. It did not work. I spent two years soldering electrodes in a little windowless room. Um, it did not happen for me. Uh, but the uh, the I just went and collected brains, and I think I looked at about forty species for my PhD. And we started to just characterize all of this variation that hadn't been described before. We kind of pushed um, Glenn Northcutt's paper as well, because there's even more overlap. The more species you have, you see this even greater overlap in terms of relative brain size and greater variation. And started to get really excited about what might explain that variation. You know, what might it mean to have a bigger brain? So yeah, so that's what get, got me into shark brains. Um, <laughs> a single sentence. <laughs> go look at some brains. <laughs> go, yeah, we just we sh go collect some brains. <laughs> Amazing! I love that story because it's it's just very much like one door closed, another door opened. It's like a perfect example of that. Um, and we do, I know that we do get a lot of students listening or people who are kind of at that stage where they're thinking about going into a PhD or they're maybe kind of in the first or second year. And that's a really good experience to hear that your PhD is kind of more of an evolution. So it, nine times out of 10, it doesn't end up the way that it started. Never. No, never. And I, I think the best points of my career have been when things have gone wrong. They didn't feel great at the time, but times when you have to, you know, troubleshoot or pivot or, you know, there have been times where I got a little cocky and expected something with a sample that I was getting and then learned just how wrong I was. And that was great because it sends you in a different trajectory or, or challenges your assumptions. And so I've, I've learned that being wrong and kind of having to move things in a new direction almost always leads somewhere good. But obviously things have gone very right for you because you now direct the 
brilliantly named zombie lab at uncw um but what can well first of all can you tell us what zombies stands for Yes, and I will confess, um, I came up with the name first, and then sort of retrofit the, al- <laughs> the um, acronym because well, it makes sense. Zombie brains. It was the per- it, it's the perfect name for us, and I kind of got the idea. I was at a conference, and um, something that I found would happen to me, and then I found that I passed it on to my students for good or for bad. Um, is was at a conference and I I was talking to um, it was a shark meeting and what naturally happens is you're speaking to people who are doing amazing shark research and so you kind of start to think about collaborations and so we were we were at one of the receptions and I noticed my students were talking to people um, and doing exactly what I do which is oh yes we're looking at gut content analysis in this species and you're going to see them going uh-huh uh-huh so do you ever get any mortalities <laughs> like so can I get can I get the brains? <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm just creating a little team of zombies <laughs> who are running around just being like, cool, cool. Can I, can I get their brain? If, if, if one dies, can you call me? <laughs> like, and I, so once I thought it, you can't unthink it. Um, and I, I knew it was no, there could not be a more perfect name for us. We, we've hit over a thousand brains in the lab right now. Um, and all we do, we're just constantly kind of trying to collect new tissue, ask new questions, always on the hunt for brains. So yes, zombies is perfect, uh, but it is an acronym. Um, so to understand the acronym, first you need to understand uh, a new word, which is called zootomy. And so that's just a fancy word for comparative anatomy. I was very excited when I found this word. <laughs> so was that, was that before or after the acronym <laughs> that you after. found that word? <laughs> uh, I, I had heard it before, but I was like, oh, cause you have to, it's really hard to find words that start with Z. So anyway, yeah, so the acronym stands for Zootomical Morphology of the Brain and Its Evolution. Perfect. It's like you had it planned all along. <laughs> Almost. Again, it's, 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 I, my career, some things have just happened backwards and I, I just roll with it. It's fine. <laughs> I've got so many like images in my head. Well, first of all, your students at a conference following people around and asking them for brains and then these kind of really awkward academics kind of going, ah, I think I need to talk to someone over there, <laughs> like sc- scurrying off really quickly. Although I suppose if you're in the room with shark scientists, I think everyone would understand. Oh, yes. And nowadays, everybody knows what we do. And, and we're, we're fairly unique, I would say, in the field. And so now people just mail us brains. Now, you know, we don't even have to worry so much. People know who we are and they're like, oh, I know why you're coming for me. <laughs> this is like a regular theme on this podcast, actually. We've had, well, not, not for, you're the first who gets brains in the mail, but we've had people that have poop in the mail or they've got like dead sharks in their freezers. It's a safe space here for fellow shark oh, Good. Um, but <laughs> what kind of questions does your zombie team seek to answer? Yeah, so we're really interested in uh, brain evolution um, and particularly, so we look, I always kind of put it under three primary pillars. And so the first pillar is understanding variation in the brain across species. So how do brains vary, um, you know, from a white shark to say a deep sea dogfish? And can we use patterns of brain organization to make inferences about function. So sensory specialization or specialized behaviors. Um, And 
we we've gotten very um, in our comparative data set. We've actually gotten fairly confident in some of those predictions. So we've looked at oh gosh, upwards of 180 species so far. And so when you have this amazing data set, you start to be able to apply a range of statistical models that lets you parse out patterns. And we have found huge variation um, that correlates very closely with ecology and life history parameters. So that's kind of always the ongoing, we're always collecting new brains, we're always kind of seeing how one new sample can kind of throw off everything that you kind of took for granted. And that's, that's really exciting. So I'm always looking out for my weird, weird and wonderful species. I love the weirdos. I love the species you just know got picked on on the shark playground, right? Right now, if anybody wants to get me a Christmas present, please send me a goblin shark brain. It would make my day. <laughs> oh, we, we love goblin sharks on this podcast. We are big fans of them. Mm -hmm. They're amazing. And they're so weird. And I would just love to look at their brain. Um, and then, so then the other pillar, you'll get used to me, guys. Don't worry. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This is great. I'm loving it. <laughs> the, uh, so the other pillar is we, we're very interested in not just how brains vary between species, but how they vary in a single species. And so that can either be how does the brain change normally um, throughout ontogeny? So as animals are aging, they're obviously growing in body size. They're usually moving from a nursery habitat to what will eventually become their primary habitat. Um, they're experiencing changes in diet, some changes in behavior, right? Those that happen at the onset of sexual maturity. So you have all of these changes in ecology and behavior coupled with the fact that shark brains and, and other fishes actually have a lot of plasticity. So what that means is um, in you and I, we have most of the neurons that we're going to get. So when we're born, we don't have um, much capacity to generate new neurons. So that's why brain injury is really um, terrible for us because we can't generate new neurons outside of a couple of proliferative zones. But sharks can actually generate new neurons forever. So they have what we call lifelong neurogenesis. So this creates an amazingly plastic system. So if you looked at, so we published a study in 2020, we looked at how the brain changed throughout life in a coastal species called the Atlantic sharp-nosed shark. Um, and we found huge changes in the brain. So it, it grew throughout life as we predicted, um, but the patterns of what I call brain organization. So looking at the relative size of different brain components that do different things for the animal, um, it reorganized as the animal aged. So the regions associated with processing odor actually started to occupy greater proportions of the brain, as did the regions that are associated with motor control and motor learning. Um, but surprisingly, the regions that get input from the eyes, so the, the structures we associate with visual processing, actually got much smaller throughout life. So we saw all of these changes that might reflect, oh, okay, this it's potentially Juveniles are relying more on kind of visual cues or visually mediated behaviors. And then as they age, they might be shifting to kind of more olfactory mediated interactions. Wow, that's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah, so we, we find plasticity so interesting. And so the, the third aspect of what we do, which is maybe the thing I'm most excited about, is you've got all this variation between species, right, that 
correlates with ecology. You've got all of this plasticity in a system. So you have changes throughout life. So what happens if we mess with their primary habitat? So we're working on some experimental models looking at how does anthropogenic disturbance affect brain development? So that could be anything from dredging, you know, and turbidity to what we're, we're submitting a proposal to look at now is how um, climate change parameters. So things like rising temperatures, changing ocean pH, how is that going to affect normal development of the brain? Um, because that very possibly and very likely will correlate to some sort of cognitive consequence. Yeah, right. Because it affects them. It affects their bodies in other ways. You know, their reproductive systems, their immune systems. So you know, it's bound to affect like every single part of them. That's super, super yeah. interesting. Yeah, we're we're really excited about it. Um, and I'm personally so interested in what is this actual link between form and function, right? So even going back to that first question in my PhD, so what does it mean to have a big brain? Does it actually mean something functionally? So here, even if we see differences in brain size, what I want to know is what that means. So we're going to be looking at the neuroanatomy, but also um, doing kind of learning trials, doing odor tracking trials so that we can actually say, A, a reduction in the size of, say, those olfactory brain regions, we can link that directly to potential olfactory impairment. Oh my goodness. Can I, uh, can I retrain and uh, come join your zombie lab? <laughs> oh, that would be so much fun. I think, <laughs> yeah, come anytime. You can come see the collection. It's a little overwhelming right now. I, I would be as happy as a pig and muck, to be quite honest with you. I would love to come and see that. Um, but uh, unfortunately, I did specialise in the realm of social science and policy. So it's a long time ago that I did any anatomy stuff. But I'm, I'm, I'm a quick learner. I will come. Um, <laughs> imagine if I just arrived on your doorstep. I'll, I'll bring you a, a Baskin chalk brain. Oh, OK. <laughs> yes, you may have actually just clinched it. <laughs> <laughs> I have to find I have to find a dead Baskin chalk first, um, which might take a little while, but I'll work on that and then I'll come over. Okay, work yeah, work on that. That would be amazing. Oh, how do how would you even get that through customs? Anyway, I'm I'm getting I'm getting on a on a different tangent. We're going to come back to the differences between species and all of the things that you were talking about just then. Um, but first, uh, I kind of wanted to go through the basics because we uh, might have people listening who, like me before I started researching this episode, kind of don't really know that much about shark brains. Um, and I know that the brain size and shape varies widely between species and kind of we're going to get into that. But is there like a basic structure so do they have basic components um, and what are the functions of those different components yes uh, so if you have never seen a shark brain before or don't understand its structure you're in good company I don't think many people have <laughs> most people have not thought even that sharks had much of a brain so right why would they dig any deeper than that uh, so yes so um, it's kind of hard to explain without visuals, but I want you to kind of picture a system 
that's very like modular is the word that I'll use. You can kind of imagine very much like our own brain. You can break it down into different major structures. So sorry, podcast people, you don't get to see this, but I'm showing Ella. <laughs> but I do. <laughs> 3D printed Mako shark brain. Also like our brains, right? Different structures are going to get input from different sensory systems or they might serve integratory functions or right help modulate motor control. So quickest neuroanatomy lesson in the world, you know, you can kind of imagine breaking it down into these smaller components that are going to serve different functions. So you'll have regions that receive input from the olfactory epithelium. So we associate that with processing odor. Um, you have other regions. So for example, um, at the very front of the brain, we associate that with things like spatial learning and memory, um, right? Kind of higher cognitive functions. Then we have regions that receive information from the retina. So we associate it with processing vision or structures that help regulate the production of hormones. And then again, regions that are responsible for uh, motor control, motor learning, target tracking, uh, and then other regions that kind of get information from some unique senses in sharks. So if everybody listening loves sharks, you know they can detect minute electric fields in their environment. So those are um, detected by things called electroreceptors. And electroreceptors have to go somewhere to be processed, right? So that information gets sent to a region at the back of the brain. Um, and then there's other regions that, for example, will get information from the lateral line, which is going to detect hydrodynamic cues around the body. Um, and then there's a range of other regions that perform a, a, a wide variety, I would say, of different homeostatic functions, um, you know, send signals to the spinal cord. So actually, it's very similar that to, to the way brains of other vertebrates are set up. Um, and one of the things I found fascinating about sharks is they were actually the first... Uh, group to have what we call the vertebrate brain blueprint. So sharks were the first to have a brain made up of all of the key fundamental components that are shared all the way through vertebrates all the way to you and me. And I did read as well that your favorite part of the brain is the cerebellum, is that right? That is yes. right. Uh, <laughs> it was actually just an extra credit question on my neuro exam. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, did you ask Did you ask them what your favorite part was was that a question i did brilliant uh, yeah i like to do extra credit questions or if they're really listening they'll get it uh i do i talk about the cerebellum a lot yes so there's many reasons why it's the best um one is that sharks were the first to have it so that was kind of the first uh, which is where the blueprint comes from because the cerebellum is shared across vertebrates um it also appeared first in sharks, but has remained really conserved in terms of its circuitry, which I think is fascinating. The best part though, is that we're still not fully sure what it does. So there is some functional consensus. We know some of the functions it serves, um, but I think there's probably things it does that we haven't even realized yet. And I love that. I love the idea of there being all this functional debate and all this room for discovery. Yeah, and I love it when there's a mystery because it feels like nowadays, like we know so much stuff, like there's Google and you can find answers to anything. And I like it that there's still some mystery left in the world. So they have similar components to, you know, our own brains, but the brain that you just held up there looks very different to our own in terms of how it's organized. Like how would you describe 
Oh, amazing. She has one ready, one that she made earlier. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I'm a very prepared person. Um, Yeah, so um, I'm actually holding up uh, a 3D print of a human brain, and even weirder, it's actually a 3D print of my brain. Um, so, uh, yes, we, we do a lot of MRI in the lab, and so we have all these MRI scans, which allow us to make these amazing 3D prints. So uh, in neuro, I students um, learn actually a lot of the anatomy on these 3D printed models, um, but this is actually mine. <laughs> It lives in my actual head. Um, you may comment on how smart I look. I mean, it, it's a beautifully, very well folded right. and very intelligent looking brain. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah. So when you look kind of across evolutionary time, what's really uh, happened, particularly in mammals, is sort of expansion of um, this region of the brain here called the telencephalon. So all vertebrates have a telencephalon, um, but certain groups have kind of more extensively elaborated this structure. So for example, mammals are the only group to have this neocortex. So when you're picturing a human brain, you're kind of picturing those two very folded hemispheres and and that is our neocortex. Um, And there are um, some other species that kind of have what we consider homologous structures, Um, but really the neocortex is sort of this evolutionary innovation in mammals. But what um, I always kind of find fascinating when I do comparative neuroanatomy lessons is you can see a little shark brain in a human brain. So imagine just expansion of this forebrain region, right? A kind of positioned in a slightly different way. Um, but there is this incredible consistency uh, in the way brains are set up, in the way they function. Um, and then there are these variations that also sort of speak to individual tasks or behaviors that are required for success within that particular group. So as fascinated as I am by differences in the brain, I think I'm equally fascinated by what's actually been conserved across evolutionary time. Yeah, that's amazing. Because when you held them up together, what we might actually do is, um, because what goes along with every podcast is we have like an online sort of article that goes along with it so people can read through as well as listening. Um, And so we might put some like some imagery in so people can see what you were just talking about there. Good idea. I Yeah, that's great. I hate when I'm listening to a podcast and they're talking about, oh, this uh, that's so cool. It's like, not cool for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because it's, it's such a, it's an audio medium, unfortunately. Because when I first learned about like the structure of shark brains and I learned that they can, some of them look kind of Y-shaped and some of them look a little bit more like, a, like an ice cream kind of stacked on top of each other. But when you sort of held them up together, you can sort of really see the similarities there in the, in the structure and I suppose that makes sense given that they were the they were the kind of the basic blueprint which I didn't know just fascinating make sharks even cooler <laughs> it does make sharks even cooler I mean the more that I do this podcast the more that I just add to my growing list of why sharks are just better than everything <laughs> So we've kind of covered the basics there, but now um, I'm going to move into the kind of comparative uh, comparative anatomy. And you've looked at lots and lots of different brains, as we discussed at the start of the podcast. And I'm not expecting you to describe them all because 
we could do a whole podcast series on this and maybe we should, but it would take us much longer. Um, but what sort of differences might we see between species? Yeah, so um, I'll, I guess I'll, I'll speak in generalities, right? Because we've looked at so many, I can't go into all of the nuances. Um, but in the show notes, if anybody wants a link to kind of our, our papers, um, we've kind of got that up on our website. So you can you can read a little bit further into specific species. Uh, or I, I don't know if you are really interested in phylogenetic multivariate statistics. You can read all about that in those papers too. I will not bore you with that now. Um, Love reading that before I go to bed. <laughs> y- yeah, it will. It'll knock you out. I tell you, nothing like a PGLS <laughs> model lullaby. To... Um, so, kind of as I said at the beginning of this, um, we see all this variation in the brain, and so looking at drivers for that variation, we started to kind of question whether. Do species that live in different habitats, um, you know, are they, do they have kind of a similar brain morphotype or cerebrotype, as we called it? Um, And it's turned out that that ends up being very nuanced. uh, And there kind of are a lot of caveats that are involved in that. But ultimately, kind of for the purposes of today, we can say that there's a lot of variation in patterns of brain organization or the relative size of those different brain components um, that is closely correlated with ecology um, and life history. So just as an example, if if I invited you to the lab, which sounds like you're keen, Absolutely. Uh, we could lay all 180 you know, brains on the counter and uh, I would say, okay, put them in piles, put, put these brains in piles um, and those piles should be brains that look similar to each other. And you do not have to be a neuroscientist. I would not have to give you any training. You could just start putting them in little groups Um, based on ones that looked similar to you. And what would end up happening is you would find those piles corresponded to species that lived in similar environments, were hunting similar prey, generally swimming at similar speeds, right? So we found these these correlations with um, primary habitat, with lifestyle, um, with diet, with social complexity. And the, again, it can kind of, the more you dig in, the more samples we get, it can vary and change and get more nuanced. Um, but that's sort of this fundamental through line. So we're still in my lab and we're looking at one of your piles and let's say it's the deep sea species. So if you looked at a deep sea shark uh, brain, what we have generally found is sort of irrespective of being closely related to one another or very distantly related, they seem to have converged on a very common brain plan, which is overall small brains relative to their body size with um, a brain that has large regions that process odor. So we call those olfactory bulbs and then exceptionally large regions that process electroreceptive and lateral line cues. And that's coupled with a reduction in the size of the visual brain regions. So from that, we've proposed, well, that very likely reflects a specialization of non-visual senses in these deep, dark habitats. And sort of as you go deeper and deeper, you kind of see even greater expansion of those electroreceptive brain regions. And then if we moved up out of the deep sea and into higher light level environments, you actually can see a shift in those patterns. So... If I handed you a gray reef shark brain, um, you would almost see the complete opposite. 
So now those olfactory and electroreceptive brain regions become relatively reduced. Um, and instead, um, and I always say this, I think the brain starts to reflect if I'm living around a spatially complex, well-lit reef, probably my brain is um, going to need to process different kinds of information. And so we see enlargement of the regions that process visual cues um, and enlargement of the structures responsible for things like spatial learning and memory. So you have these animals living in these 3D spatially complex environments. So it does sort of start to make sense. Uh, and then we could go on and on and start to shift out to more pelagic species. And you see differences there as well. Um, and so we're sort of at the, the point, caveat being that I don't mind being wrong, but we're at the point where you could hand us a random shark brain and I can tell you pretty confidently where it lives, what it eats, um, you know, what kind of primary habitat it's living just in. From its, just from its brain. Just from its brain. Yeah. And I, I, I love that. I think that that's like a superpower. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. What a, super, a zombie superpower. What a superpower to have. And, and <laughs> it has the added benefit in a zombie apocalypse. You guys are safe because they're coming for me first. Because <laughs> <laughs> I've got the brains, right? So well, I will distract them. You can get away. Save, save yourselves. <laughs> Save yourselves. Yeah, exactly. That's um, very, that's very, very um, admirable of you. Um, and I hope that never happens. <laughs> I hope it never happens too, but I'm ready. <laughs> but one of the brains that you have looked at is what that of the largest shark in the world, the whale shark. And you did find that it had a relatively small brain relative to its body size. And I was very interested in this because the species that I've worked the most closely with is the Baskin shark, who I seem to be able to bring up in every single podcast episode. And this is me like shoehorning them into this one. Um, but another thing that we think about Baskin sharks is that they also have quite a small brain and being the second largest species of shark in the world, you know. Um, but, you know, we, we typically, as humans, we typically seem to think that the size of the brain mean something and I was wondering if when it comes to shark brains you know does size matter oh you just hit on the question that plagues us all right does size matter <laughs> that that is <laughs> that's my lifelong career question uh yeah no actually I'm glad you brought up that study because that for for all the young people listening that was such a great example of me being really wrong um and that that not being this horrible thing. So I, um, I finished my PhD and I had looked at, like I said, maybe about 40 or 50 or so species. And so at that point, I had figured out that there was variation in the brain that correlated with ecology. And I think I was a little cocky. So the whale shark study um, was an opportunistic collection of species uh, of the individuals from the Georgia Aquarium. And they're wonderful there. They were um, very supportive of obviously wanting research to happen um, from this tragic event of having these animals die. So we were able to sample the brain um, very, very thankfully. And before it got to me, I had some predictions. <laughs> I said, well, I know what it does. I know where it lives. I know what this is going to look like. And then I got it in the mail. And it was this moment of, oh, I, wow, I'm really wrong. <laughs> and I don't mean a little bit wrong. I mean, I was wrong in every single way a person could be wrong. 
And at first you're like, oh no. And then, and then it's really cool because it suddenly forces you to challenge these assumptions that you, you have had. And it reminds you that science is so much bigger than us um, and is going to send you lessons right when you need them. So then I got to, we scanned it and I got to learn how wrong I was, which was really fun. Um, so I got numbers associated with how wrong I had been. So going into it, I had, I had some predictions and um, in particular, I thought what I would see. So we had previously sort of seen um, enlargement of the cerebellar region, um, the cerebellum, motor control and motor learning. And I had previously only seen enlargement of it and um, extensive folding in really fast moving active species. So we would see large cerebellums with lots of folds in um, thresher sharks and mako sharks and white sharks. And, and so this idea, which also made sense thinking about motor control, right? Right, active, agile, prey capture. So I said, nope, cerebellum's gonna probably be, you know, small-ish, average. These are not known for being active, agile predators. Um, I thought that they might have enlarged regions associated with vision because um, they spend a lot of time in the photic zone uh, and a lot of my other pelagic species that were open ocean, I would see, you know, large visual brain regions. And then I thought we would actually see um, large regions that processed electroreceptive information. I thought, well, maybe the plankton blooms, maybe they're actually using electroreceptive cues to find those blooms in addition to some olfactory cues. So... <laughs> I got the brain and I'm very disappointed in myself. I don't have the 3D print, but everything I thought would be large was not. <laughs> and the brain was overshadowed by this absolutely enormous cerebellum. One of the biggest I'd ever seen, tons of folding in complexity. And and sorry, just just quickly, like the folding, um, the foldings are good, like meant to be a quote unquote good thing, right? It indicates. Yes. So there's so much backstory to give you guys. So sharks can actually have variation, not just in size of structures, but in complexity. So in some species, you'll get like this completely smooth cerebellum surface. And then in others, you'll kind of get the, these very um, deep folds and it, it'll kind of start to turn into cerebellar asymmetry. And even in, you know, where you get really big brains, you'll kind of get these multiple like additional uh, lobes of the cerebellum. Whose is that that you just This one's a hammerhead, <laughs> tell ya. I love the weirdos. <sighs> They're my fave. That makes a lot of sense. They do need big brains to sort of handle all of that oh, information yes. they're getting, hey, from the... For sure. Big head. Anyway, sorry, continue. <laughs> oh, so, yes. So the idea is, you know, folding. I had assumed and kind of um, in some of our early analyses thought, okay, lots of folding is in our active agile predators. But if you remember, I said why the cerebellum is so cool is that we're still not 100% sure what it does. So the best thing about being so wrong is it kind of forced me to go back and revisit that, that functional debate. And so we proposed with that, you know, the cerebellum is obviously going to be um, associated with motor control and motor learning, but it may also be very closely linked to coordinating large bodies in 360 degree ocean space. And so um, as our data set grew and many years later, we, we've done all of the modeling and, and yes, uh, high levels of foliation are predicted by brain size, cerebellum size and body size very, very closely correlated with that. So larger bodied species have bigger cerebellums with more folds because they have a bigger body to control with 
um, with, with that brain, essentially. But overall brain size was small relative to body size. And it may surprise you that this is not a trait that's unique to whale sharks. So like you say, we see it in basking sharks. It's very common in white sharks, um, megamouth. We've looked at their brains uh, and our recent study on the Greenland shark. So there are, um, there are some suggestions that this is not an evolutionary reduction in brain size. This is actually simply the fact that you have a very rapid, large body growth but you don't have commensurate brain growth. Um, and I think in some ways it's even cooler, all of the amazing things that they can do without this huge brain. Um, so, and we do see that kind of consistently that the brain does continue to grow throughout life, but it tapers off um, at, at or around sexual maturity. Right, okay. So, so like brain size, like isn't the only thing that indicates, you know, how complex an animal can be or, how many like complex behaviors it can have? Mm, no, we don't think so. We and, and I think it really you have to dig deeper than than brain size because as you know, maybe everyone is is learning through my nerdery. Um, it's not just brain size. It's what about the size of these different components? And then if we can dig even deeper than that, what about number of neurons versus non neurons in these components? You know, what does it actually mean? what does size mean in terms of function? And I don't even know if I will fully answer that in my career, um, but I'm hoping all, all of my little zombies <laughs> might one day get at that question. <laughs> my next question, I'm so sorry. I know this is your least favorite question and there isn't an easy answer to it, but I know that our listeners sitting at home will want me to ask this. I know what's coming. Wait, okay, <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> Are you prepared? Um, but like we said at the beginning, sharks kind of still have this reputation as like the mindless machines or even like from the films, we think of them as really cunning villains or when it comes to the whale shark or the Baskin shark, we tend to think there's kind of not much going on upstairs. There's always this debate about like how intelligent sharks are. Do we know anything about this, about the level of intelligence? I, I imagine it's a really difficult question to answer. Yes, and um, I appreciate you trying to word it in a way that is not the question that I hate the most in the world. Um, so <laughs> I will level with all of you. When people find out what I do, I usually get asked, are sharks smart? <laughs> are they smart? Are they serial killers? Are they actively hunting us? Like some variation on that theme. Um, and the reason it's my least favorite question, honestly, is because what does it mean to be smart? I think that is an even bigger, more challenging question to answer, especially when I say you can't base it on the way we quantify human intelligence. Because we have this very kind of top-down, human-centric approach to thinking about the word smart. Um, and it becomes so difficult to find a measure of, I say cognitive ability, because I think intelligence is, is very subjective. Um, but how do you measure cognitive ability in a way that is true to the challenges faced by that organism? Um, so it is really hard. We, um, we avoid that question, but I would say, right, even if it's, uh, if we say, okay, We've decided that measuring intelligence is the ability to do calculus, right? Solve amazingly complex math equations. And you'd say, well, 
on that scale, sharks aren't doing very well. <laughs> right. But if you think, okay. <laughs> has, that, has anyone ever tried though? I, well, actually sharks, sharks can do math. There are some studies uh, that, that show they're, they actually have, they're capable of some incredible behaviors. Uh, I, I think people would be shocked to know their learning capabilities. Um, and, and some of the very highly complex cognitive tasks that they can perform. And we don't do um, those studies personally, but I have some wonderful collaborators who look specifically at shark learning um, or are looking specifically at shark cognition. And, and, and yeah, I think every, every time they make a new discovery, it's like, wow, I would never have thought that a shark could do that. So nothing surprises me anymore. So from my perspective, I think, okay, well, if we reframe it and think about smart, is it the ability to persist for millions of years? Is it the ability to capitalize on new niche opportunities? Uh, I tend to think about it more in terms of behavioral flexibility, right? So the ability to, um, oh, there was a, there's a great quote uh, uh, by Hubert Markle, and it, I think he, I'm going to paraphrase and probably butcher it, um, but it was something about the ability to take seemingly disparate pieces of information and then apply them in an adaptive manner. And so whether that might be strategies for acquiring prey or, you know, habitat adaptability, the ability to adapt in a changing environment, um, the ability to kind of behaviorally regulate um, or get away from noxious stimuli, right? So thinking about defining intelligence is maybe the bigger challenge. And I don't think we have figured that out yet. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for answering that. I knew there would be people sitting at home that were like, please, why aren't you asking this question? Why aren't you asking about intelligence? And it reminds me very much of, there's a book about orca called Of Orcas and Men. And they discuss mm. this whole conundrum around how we define intelligence. And like you said, we have our own human idea of what that means, but you can't really apply that to other species. And I did like that analogy of, or the idea that it's how well that you can adapt to different situations. Because I mean, look at how much we've taken over the world. But then if you think about how successful sharks have been for so many, many millions of years longer than we have, there's a reason for that. Um, thank you for humoring me with that question. <laughs> it's all right. We got through it. We're still friends. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Don't hate me for if asking If you get me that. a basking shark, basking shark brain and all will be forgiven. I will try my hardest. I'll try my best. <laughs> um, but we are coming to the end of our podcast. An hour goes so quickly. I could honestly ask you things all day. But uh, I've just got a couple of final questions, quite quick ones. And if people wanted to follow your amazing work and the zombie lab, how can they find you? Well, happy to put it in the show notes as well, but it we have a, web, a website, so you can find us at yopeclab.com. Um, we are occasionally on Twitter. Um, so my personal Twitter handle is um, Prof Shark Brain, also appropriately named. Brilliant. Um, and then the lab uh, Twitter is uh, Yopak Zombie Lab. Fantastic. And yes, there will be links to all of those in the show notes as always. And we'll be tagging the zombie lab and, and yourself like in all of our social media posts so people can find you there just to make sure that everybody knows exactly where to go. And lastly, this is 
A very silly question. I know you know what's coming. If you could be <laughs> any species of shark, ray, skate, or chimera in the world, what would you be and why? And I've had to put a little caveat on this because we've had a lot of people who are very worried about overfishing and pollutants and things. It's in an ideal world where humans either don't exist or haven't had an, as much of an impact as we have. So... Yeah, it's so funny because the two bookend questions are the ones that stumped me. I was like, oh, yeah, I can talk about <laughs> brain and data all day. Um, I was like, oh, ocean experience. And what shark would I be? Um, honestly, there are so many, but I think I would go back to one of my weirdos, right? One of the ones that has some extreme morphological adaptation. And when I really thought about it, it had to be hammerhead. <laughs> Hammerheads are so weird, and I will send you guys a link. They have absolutely enormous brains. They have clearly figured something out, um, and it would be really <laughs> cool to know what that is. Brilliant. Absolutely fantastic answer. Yeah, I I love to imagine, or there was one day where me and my friend were on a boat out at sea looking for Baskin sharks, and we were rolling around, hadn't seen any for days. We were going a little bit mad, a little bit delirious, and we started to imagine what different shark species would be like at school. So like what sort of roles they would fulfill. Uh, and now I can imagine hammerheads as like the super intel, like the prodigies of the shark world. Yeah. The nerdy ones. Yeah. And I, I always gravitate to the nerds. So I, I like it. And I like, I like the species that are just, I'm marching to my own drum. It's like, what? This is my head. What? I love that. I love that. Oh my goodness. I need to find a Baskin shark brain and then I will come over and I will join your lab and I will happily just support from the sidelines. I'll play some music. It'll be fantastic. Amazing. Um, anytime. Come anytime. <laughs> thanks. But Cara, this has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so, so much for spending some time with us and teaching us all about shark brains. It has been utterly fascinating and so incredible to meet you as well oh thank you no bad i've had so much fun i can't believe an hour went by so fast um but yeah this was great and um i hope anybody listening if they want to know more you can definitely check out our papers and our website um and there's more info than you'd ever want to know about shark brains so much it will all be in the show notes so get ready for your bedtime reading <laughs> all right thanks cara <laughs> thank you bye This podcast was brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. It was hosted and produced by me, Isla Hodgson. Our amazing visuals are by Jamie Silver. Our beautiful logo is by Nicola Poulos. And the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. A enormous nerdy thank you to Dr. Kara Yopak for coming onto our podcast and teaching us all about the fascinating world of shark brains. It was so incredibly interesting and I had a lot of fun and I'm sure a lot of you at home had fun too. If you are now team zombie and you did indeed love this episode, please be sure to rate, review and subscribe. It really helps other people to find us, find out how amazing sharks are and also find out about incredible people like Kara who are doing fascinating and very cool things to help us understand sharks and help to protect them. And lastly, thank you at home for listening. If you want to get in touch, 
ask for a question to be covered on the podcast or a topic to be covered, please feel free to do so. We love hearing from you. You can get in touch in a couple of ways. You can email Isla at SaveOurSeas.com or you can find us on social media. We are at SaveOurSeas on Twitter and at SaveOurSeas Foundation on Instagram. Alrighty, have a awesome week and we will see you next time.